Hey, welcome to the 272nd episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Tim Morrill, Garen Chadwick, and Morgan Rout. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we have Myron Kirstein on the podcast. He is an editor that has edited so many amazing things, most notably right now in The Heights, a movie that's already out, came out on HBO and is probably in theaters right now and smashing records for post-pandemic films. It's Lin-Manuel Miranda's play, Come to Life, directed by John Chu, the director of Step Up and Crazy Rich Asians and another amazing dance movie that I can't think of right now. But uh, yeah. The, the League of Extraordinary Dancers. Of yeah. And most importantly to me, Guai Lo, the USC oh, yeah. thesis film that I PA'd on. As a yes. as a, a wee freshman, very exciting. Very exciting. Myron himself has edited some amazing things. He did Garden State. Have you seen that movie? Heard of it? Zach Braff. Oh, sure. Yeah. Raising Victor Vargas, one of a, the early indie breakout films. He did The Dukes of Hazard. He did Little Fockers. He did Up All Night, House of Lies, Girls, Divorce. He did the pilot for that on HBO. Yeah, and good trouble. Uh, so, so many great things. He's a real treat to talk to. You know, I think he's a very instinctual editor, which is, I think, uh, a real treat. You know, I think he has a lot of great philosophies, but also understands that you know editing comes from the gut. So it's a really good conversation. I want to say, if you want to see in the heights, if you don't know the story, if you haven't heard the soundtrack. You know, this would be a good one. Uh, we we talk specifically about certain numbers and all of that. So it's it's helpful to have a little bit of background knowledge. It's not essential. But if you're thinking about watching In the Heights, maybe go ahead and do it. Pull over, download a BitTorrent, or drive to your nearest movie theater, watch In the Heights, and then come back to us. Worthwhile. And also, there is a spoiler warning. We have a relatively meaty spoiler in this episode so i think we haven't seen the movie yet but we know one thing has been spoiled yeah so so a heads up there most of it is spoiler free but there is one kind of i assume having not seen the the piece relatively consequential spoiler yeah yeah yeah, exactly so (laughs) spoilers aside it was a really fun conversation it's great to hear how even a movie that big based on an existing stage show that was a smash hit on its own accord was still a movie that had to be rearranged in post reworked re-edited especially with covid that bought them actually a lot of time to go back into the film and figure out exactly what worked and what didn't and Myron tells us a lot about that. And we also just talk about editing music in general and choosing coverage and all that geeky stuff that I love to talk about, like when to make a cut and what should you cut to. The obvious things that make all the difference in the pacing and the emotion of a film. When Orrin and I were talking about this episode in particular, you know, kind of prepping for it, we realized that oftentimes we tend to, you know, put people into two different buckets. We will be like, okay, we're going to talk to this person about the business and then some people were going to talk to about the craft. And it's been a minute since we've done a craft episode and it was so fun. It was like, it was really refreshing to just kind of dig in on what makes something good and not worry about how they got their first job or any of that stuff. So if you want to get nerdy about just the act of making specifically musicals, but in editing in general, if you want to just become a better editor, a better filmmaker, this episode is specifically about that. So um, it was genuinely so fun to to talk to Myron. Yeah. Before we get to our Patreon plug, I did want to say something kind of funny. I got an email today from one of our listeners who had contacted me about doing some blender work because he said he heard on the podcast that I have some free time and I'm not busy. <laughs> uh, he's like, I don't take care of that kid, but maybe you... Uh... You can have some time to do some 3D work. So A, I love it when people from the podcast contact me. I've actually done quite a few jobs with podcast guests or people I've just met through the podcast. I do have some shoots coming up. So, you know, 
sometimes what you hear about our availability and what's happening the second that we are recording the the episode don't exactly track to when the episode come out but i did i did it was an interesting piece of information to know that i i didn't even remember that i told people i had some free time yeah you know it's also something where we we're a we don't want to brag about what work we're doing and we don't have any takeaways from it yet you know it's after a week or two of the job that you process things that you can kind of talk about it in a more cogent way and we also focus on the trials and tribulations of being a filmmaker so we're not like oh man getting jobs is so easy i just am working all the time life is crazy isn't a super interesting part of our lives but i think it does result in listeners thinking that we are more hard up for work than we actually are (laughs) yeah funny side effect of everything and I do, I do try to focus a lot on our downtime or us like losing jobs and things. Cause I, I want, you know, people to know that it's it, no matter where you are in your career, you know, even Myron who, you know, edited these like epic films talked about how during COVID for six months, he didn't have any work. And he was like, should I leave the business? Uh, um, you know, so it, that I, knowing that you're in that same company, that 90% of what we do is stress out, I think is, is helpful for people. Um, and it's not something you would get a fr- from a press junket. And the other thing, I think you already mentioned it, but sometimes we're working on projects and they're not always going great. And we are meeting a lot of new people and some of them might realize we have a podcast and it's not great if they listen to the podcast and you're talking about them or their project. Yeah, yeah. One so, time I was on this job and this producer really was so stupid. They said these dumb things. Yeah, but I will say one of the projects I'm working on right now, something interesting did happen and I did want to talk about it. Uh, I, on the bigger scope, I told you about it the other day, and I will wait till uh, next episode or maybe the episode after that Ooh, to a, mention it. A teaser, yeah, yeah. But I think it's an it's an interesting thing about like emotions and feedback and how your work is seen by the world. And yeah, it, I think it could be a fun lesson. We are actively mining our careers for lessons for the podcast in a, in a pretty real <laughs> yeah. way. So anyway, anyway, before we talk to Myron, I'd like, love to remind people that we have a Patreon. Uh, if you hear a name at the beginning of an episode, that usually is one of our patrons. I'm assuming everyone else just hits the fast forward 30 seconds twice when we start talking about the Patreon here, but stop doing that. We say something more interesting also, every time we plug the Patreon. That, that assumes that we are much more consistent in terms of timing than we are. There's no yeah. way. I mean, that's what I do when I listen to podcasts. It's like, yeah, uh, on the daily, Michael Barbar is like, hey, you'll hear more right when we get back. And I hit hit forward three times on the 30 seconds and then backwards and one 15 back seconds. 15. Yeah. Yeah, and it's usually around right. But sometimes I find that I'm fast-forwarding and rewinding longer than it would have been to just listen to the ad. Dear listeners, imagine if you missed out on this level of banter. The quality of this banter is certainly worth your time, and it would be a a disgrace to have missed out on it, or at least a a huge loss. So do yourself a favor and listen to the entire Patreon plug. Patreon.com slash JustShootAPod. Uh, it's a place where you can throw us a buck or two. If you're really a, a, a diehard fan or worried about getting sunburnt or just like uh, hat, head coverings, for 10 bucks a month, you can get a Just Shoot It hat. It's Even a, if it's just one month, we'll give you that hat. Yeah. Yeah. Do us a favor. Stick around for two months. That that would be ideal for us. That will cover the cost of the hat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then we are not losing money on the hat. But either way, it's okay. Um, and stay subscribed. It's really helpful. We are doing again more things to spend money on the show so uh, every little bit helps and keeps us going and uh, uh, goes into the pockets of our dear editor sarah derek our social media maestro and all of the overhead the surprisingly high amount of overhead that a show like this has yeah and even some uh just shoot it ads that we're uh, putting around the internet check them out go to our instagram just shoot it pod instagram.com slash just shoot it pod if you want to see some 
some little uh, just shoot it videos we're making. So that's it. Now on with the show. Okay, we are here with Myron Kirstein. How's it going? Congratulations on probably the number one movie in the box office this weekend. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Uh, it's very exciting and, you know, it's uh, it feels like the start of summer. So to be one of those films that actually makes you feel like you might have something big or something what you'd go to when you're a kid, um, Giddy doesn't even say half of it. <laughs> It's, yeah, uh, yeah, pretty yeah. exciting. It's also one of those movies where immediately you're like, "Oh, they're gonna play this like in like uh you know outdoor screenings every summer from now on." You know what I mean? That's just gonna be part of the repertoire. Right. As of, long like, as COVID keeps going, <laughs> <laughs> forty years down the road, if we could just hope for that. No, that's horrible. <laughs> it's the worst possible joke. I, I did see on Fandango that like. I, I'm sure this is wrong. It was just a headline. It said that 96% of people are going back to the theater for the first time to watch In the Heights. It was like a survey they did last week. Like, what's the first movie you're going to see back in the theater? And it was In the Heights. Sorry, Fast 9. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Watch yeah, your back. That? Watch your yeah. back, Fast A couple of weeks, I think. A couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have a little breathing room. But uh, yeah, it's uh, that's what I've heard, too. I heard that a lot of people were... You know, if they're going to go return to the theaters, if they're going to go do it with this film, and that's that's exciting as well. And I know friends who I'm in New York right now, and I know friends in LA saying they can't get a ticket, you know, this weekend. And um, I know a lot of friends of friends who've actually bought out theaters. You know, of course, some of these theaters are just 30% capacity, but you know, I think we're over. I think we're going to be on over 4,000 screens this this weekend so i've been um, on arclight.com all day trying to get tickets and are you I serious can't get any. no arclight you're like salt i, I can't even get on the site the site must have crashed yeah yeah, yeah. yeah exactly well yeah. i was watching genuinely very sad actually. uh my current favorite show on hbo hacks that i keep talking about last night and i saw that in the heights i could watch it on hbo and i was like it was like 11 p.m i was like babe we got it we got to watch this movie right now because we're going to talk to the editor tomorrow and it only is going to be on HBO till June 11th, which is tomorrow. Do you know about this, Myron? No, I didn't know about this. Yeah, yeah I think I, they're stopping the streaming for the that's theatrical. They, they did that with Judas and the Black Messiah. They, really? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was available on HBO for a minute and then it was only theatrical and then... Yeah, so it was a little tricky. Yeah, I have, to, I have to see what's, what's going on with that. I, I assume that maybe, because um, I know that there was going to be, um, you know, they kept moving the date, you know, and they would move it up. One, like, first it was, well, first they moved it back a whole year, but then uh, <laughs> but then they moved it, you know, up a week, and then they moved it up a week and a day. And so um, maybe there was just, uh, you know, sort of, you know, giving a little window for the theatrical or something. But Right. Well, when did you finish cutting it? Was did you finish a year ago? Yes, I well, I finished the um, the summer of God. What year is this? Uh, the summer of twenty twenty. Yeah, last year. So you were cutting cutting during the pandemic during lockdown. Basically. Well, I was cutting. Uh, well, I cut I cut a majority of the film the last half of two thousand nineteen. and then we uh, through February of two thousand twenty, and then. Um, we were about to mix and then they shut us down. And then ironically enough, around that time I left, uh, before they shut us down, I left to go actually direct something for another TV show that I had cut on. And then that got shut down. 
And then John Chu called me up and said, this was like six months later and said, hey, I'd like to do a few more things on the movie. Do you want to set up in your home? And that's what I did. So then I started cutting again for a couple more months. And then, then things, then things started opening up just a tad, just to allow us to mix the final, do the final mix. So uh, it was an extended hiatus, I guess. And then it, um, it would be yeah. tempting if you know that your your big budget movie got pushed a year, right? Why not like kind of go back in and futz with things a little bit? You sat with the with the edit for a long time. Uh, all of the effects are like, close to complete. You're really seeing a whole picture. I'm sure there were a few things you wanted to like nudge one way or the other or scoot around. 100%. And in fact, it's kind of the thing you wish with almost every film you work on because you have a little time to reflect on what you've done. And we actually took scenes out of the movie and put back a couple scenes. And then the music department was so behind in February because, of course, they were meticulous. I had, you know, all the guys from the original stage production, Alex Lackamore and Bill Sherman. And... You know, uh, they wanted to do work on the, the music side, and I was like literally meticulously slipping sync with my music editors, and uh, which was taking me really months on its own just to do that type of work. And so that extra time, you know, and then coming back to it, I actually made, think it made it a much better movie than it was back in February. Well, the other crazy thing that happened after you finished cutting this movie is that Hamilton came out on Disney+. Plus. Right. Because that's the first Lin-Manuel Miranda thing that's on TV or on screen. Right. That's filmed. And probably that coming out changes the entire release plan for this movie. Right. It's like how hyped are people now? Yeah. And, you know, there was people that had heard of Hamilton, but either couldn't afford it or, you know, if they were asleep. Just never saw it. Yeah. <laughs> never, saw, never heard of it. But then they're like, oh, it's on Disney Plus. I might as well watch it. And they're like, you know, oh, wow. Like. You know, everyone wakes up to, uh, you know, Lynn, Lynn's the force of nature of Lynn. And then, um, so what, it's like the best setup in the world for, for this Incredible. film. And also just the appetite for this type of movie. You know, there's not a ton of, uh, this is like a, a proper Hollywood film, you know, it's fun. It's a musical, it's bright, it's flashy, you know, it's joyous and Hollywood doesn't make a ton of those movies anymore. And we like, I like all sorts of different types of movies, but it's really wonderful to see, you know, a musical on the big screen. You know, I think that uh, people are really hungry for that energy, you know? Well, I like to say that my currency and John's currency is love and joy and empathy. And, you know, I think we did a little of that on Crazy Rich Asians. And I think that, um, yeah, I think I'm okay in being, being in that business and to do it in this scale is you know it's what you dream of it's like okay i'm going to make something that is you know has a positive message also makes movie stars out of people who you may never have considered to be a movie star they don't look necessarily like what i'm used to you know they don't look like brad pitt you know they look like you know the guy down the block and yeah i'm very happy that this is coming out right now in this you know as a big hollywood spectacle yeah. Well, we really want to jump into the craft, but just be, my last question about just the release of this film beforehand is, I mean, you've been, you edited so many amazing things. Like we were, you know, geeking out, like raising Victor Vargas and Garden State, you know, the pilot for divorce and all these episodes of Girls. And like you mentioned, Crazy Rich Asians, like you, you've done all these things and you finished editing this movie a long time ago. 
do you still get excited? Like, is this still like a big deal when a movie like this comes out for you? When you've had such a so many great movies come out? Well, yes. I mean, I'm still like a kid, like getting into the business for the first time with every project. I, I, I'm, I look at it like with bright eyes and bushy tail, like I walk onto a set and I'm like, oh, I like, I can't believe I get to walk on the set. It's so amazing. And, and to be honest with you, like I knew that this musical was going to be really fun to cut, but I didn't realize how emotional of an experience it was going to be. I was literally crying daily watching dailies for this movie and it'd be literally people singing and dancing across a park and you know my family just makes fun of me like look he's crying again but that's how <laughs> that's my my reaction and and um it's a, it's i just i just feel land, guys. I, <laughs> yeah i i just feel uh, it's corny to say but i just feel alive and to make films that make you feel alive man i so I can do that just the rest of my life. Like, no, I'm not. I'm not jaded or cynical. I'm. I feel so fortunate to work on so many great things. But every one of those things just made me a better editor and better artist. And you know, I I just want to keep getting better. And so fortunate. You know, uh, I wasn't working for six months during the pandemic. So you know, my bank account was going down. I was like, oh my god, I think I'm gonna. I'm gonna do we have to sell the house or? Like seriously, but then you know somebody called and said, "Hey, you you know John called and said, hey, you want to you know start cutting again?" I was like, oh yes, I want to I want to start cutting again, not just not just to you know make um, make a paycheck, but also just to like have that creative output. So um, yeah, how crazy is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What what is the secret sauce that dailies can make a grown man cry? Like what what do you think it is? What are the ingredients that are in those? shots that you're seeing that are make you so emotional well i think lynn i think i think lynn in particular his lyrics are like a i i joked with him that i feel like they're like a tear factory because i just feel like they they portray so much empathy in the storytelling and uh and i just i I don't know i i can uh, you know the same way with hamilton i just connect to his lyrics which is basically our dialogue just in a really deep way and it's it's i've been actually trying to analyze why that you know why do i connect to it so deeply and i think it's just that i you know once it starts washing over you over you you just um you just really feel it but i also think that watching people who haven't been represented in this way this community hasn't been represented this way the stakes are real. Yeah, no, it feels like it's coming from a real place. It's not something someone made up and wrote down on a screenplay. Yeah, yeah, I just and it's there is a there is it's ironic because they're singing and dancing. <laughs> that's their scenes, and that's so like in theory that seems so detached and like you know is it just a pop song? We're like no, these are scenes, and I can, I just um, I don't know. There was just something about it. Every single day, I would send videos to Alice Brooks, the, the cinematographer and John Chu of me crying. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and they're like, why are you crying again? Like, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I don't that's know. True. But but that was also the thing that I was just like, I have to remember that feeling. You know, I have to right, remember right. Actually, the John, feeling for the first time of, of of experiencing the film, even in this raw state, you're trying yeah. to give to the audience. Right. Totally, because it you know, it, and 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 making note of it or making selects based on it, and say that I connected to this moment. I don't know why, but I connected to this moment, and I'm going to put that in a box, and I'm going to use it. You know, mm-hmm. and or, or a bin. Thing, 
Right. Yeah, and that's kind of like yeah. the Walter. Is that the Walter Murch thing? Like, kind of in sort his of. book. Yeah, watch, yeah. watch everything, and just like, yeah, what's your, your gut you reaction? Bl- the first your time eye you was it. blinking so much that you started to cry. Right? <laughs> it was. I was blinking. So, I yeah. I mean, I literally do the same thing. I literally sit back and I don't make. I don't even use locators, which is basically a way of like indicating something on a keyboard. Of yeah, a, like a marker. Uh, some, yeah, marker, and I just literally watch like the footage, like from top to bottom and I just take notes usually in a database or on even just a notepad if I don't have my computer in front of me. And I just say, cried for during this time time code to the you know or this lyric to this lyric on um, take, you know, twenty, you know, a camera, uh, so and so forth, you know. But one of the things that, you know, when I first uh, started on the film, John invited me up to his apartment um, it was like probably a couple of days before they started production. And he said, let me show you like the opening number, but it's rehearsal footage cut to like animatics. So it's like a combination of storyboards and rehearsal footage to like a real like rough draft of a song. And I watch it and I just started crying there too. And he was just like, it's funny because, you know, we did the table. Like, uh, we were going to fire him, but we just feel so bad at this point. Let's just keep him on the project. He's like, yeah, I was just about, I was just, he just, I had to pull off the tears right there. And, um, and he was saying, you know, a couple of days ago, they had done the table read, you know, with all the actors and everyone was weeping at, you know, during there. And he's like, we got to remember that feeling. Like that is our beacon. And I was just like, absolutely. Like everything else, like I just have to remember how I'm just connecting to things just in a very natural way, like as an audience member and I have to make note. And that all that was literally going to be the voting blocks for everything in the entire movie. How do I connect to something? I love that. I'm curious because you'd mentioned, you know, using rehearsal footage and previous footage and, and the storyboards, the the dailies that you're seeing, right? a lot of them are still pretty raw and pretty rough, right? Certainly like you have audio that's synced to it that, you know, feels of a level of production quality, but there's, you know, a lot of spectacle in this movie. I assume there are a lot of the effects, some of which are obvious. Sometimes they're dancing on the side of a building and that's probably all green screen, right? Um, But I imagine there's also a lot of uh, stuff that's a little less obvious where you're adding in different background elements or you're comping in, additional performances or, or, or background dancers, things like that. I'm curious about the timeline for when things get slotted in for you, right, from the raw footage all the way through and how those decisions are affected, you know, right? You've got that emotional feeling, right? But sometimes the dailies are literally on a green screen, right? So what yeah, does, yeah. are you seeing it that raw? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. You know, like when the sun goes down, it was, it was basically 80% green screen, except that they're dancing on the side of a wall. So a wall, a wall that's actually hydro, there's a, a engineering feat that it's actually going down. It's moving down as the camera is moving. So you can't tell when basically, you know, the sky begins and ends. And uh, it's very, I st- I'm still trying to understand how they did it. Yeah, I would but, um, see some BTS. There's gotta be BTS footage of that somewhere. Oh yeah, it, it'll start yeah, coming out be. soon. Yeah, it'll yeah. start coming out soon. But um, you know, uh, but on that type of stuff, you know, I was, you know, again, we're judging on the performance and the choreography. A lot of the choreography, you know, how, what were they doing correctly, you know, was the basis of like how we were just really cutting that number together. And there was a debate about how much should we, how much should we editorialize that number? Should we just let, you know, let the camera do the work? And, and I could pull way back, like, 
it's not like 96,000 where, you know, it, you know, it's, there's some, you know, a lot of edits in it versus this is like, maybe there's a dozen in the entire musical sequence, but, you know, I just have to imagine what it's going to look like, you know, and, and of course on a big number like that, it was important for me to cut that first as quickly as possible because we knew it was going to take six months to get that right from a VFX standpoint. So we didn't have like, we really didn't have rough comps in there for like months after we had made the first pass versus something like the beach, which was shot in Long, you know, the DR, which was shot in Long Island. I could cut that and sort of get into the moments based on, again, and just basically based on performance. And then we could put in the palm trees in the back and the beautiful sky and, you know, water. Can I ask you on VFX specifically when you're editing that as you know someone that does VFX sometimes I have noticed that editors especially newer editors tend to cut the green screen sequences too fast because they're not thinking about that all this visual information that's coming to you they're like oh here's a person dancing you know but really there's buildings there's sun there's birds there's all this stuff that is much harder to process. And so, you know, people tend to cut green screen footage a lot faster. They give it to the VFX artist. They're starting to put in plates and you're like, this is just, you can't, you know, it's too fast. Um, Is that something that you ever go through or is that, do you have any thoughts on? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's a good example of like, this is, you know, maybe at first we thought that um, there'd be more edits in the number. And then we realized that, you know, this, the spectacle of it was going to hold our attention and we didn't really need to, and we also didn't need to do it to like enhance the choreography. Like it was very, you know, it could be really lyrical with that number. It's sort of a similar, like I cut this um, 3D concert movie, Glee 3D concert movie, and it was like, you just couldn't like cut that quickly because you were in 3D. And it's sort of the same thing. Like your eyes would just kind of go crazy. And, and also, uh, like, I, I tend to try not to just, it's hard to look at this film and say, really? You know, when you see, so, like, a musical um, number like The Club, where there's so many edits, there's so much going on, but I tend to try not to cut just a cut for, just to make an edit, like, just to make you excited. Like, there's reasons in which I try to do everything. And so um, I definitely try to pull back, especially when you have big, you know, uh, you know plenty of other things to look at. Yeah. You know, going back to your, your point about performance, I think it's interesting to think about musicals because I think as filmmakers, you're very used to judging the performance of an actor in terms of does it feel authentic? Does it, did it move me? All of that stuff. But choreography is part of that performance as well. And I've done a, a tiny bit of musical stuff and I feel like I would show rough cuts to producers and things like that and like the dance experts in the room would be like oh well this take you can't use because they're like that dancer in the back is off time or something like that you know and obviously you're dealing with world-class dancers so that's probably less of an issue but you still do have to judge off of not just the acting but also the dancing how did you approach that how did you prepare for that what what does it take to know uh, good dancing from bad that's a good question. I, I don't think I, I don't know if I really know what the difference between good dancing and bad, but I do know is when, again, when something like feels, feels, <laughs> feels emotional to me. Like if somebody's doing something and they're dancing their ass off and I'm just like, holy shit, I just feel this. Like there's, there's moments in like Carnival that's, there's a dancer like slipping up in the middle of the crowd, but that doesn't matter because I'm feeling the energy of the mass 
together. That being said, you know, there's definitely moments where, you know, I'm constantly just trying to um, finesse, you know, dance moves to, again, flow into each other. Like I was using the Walter Murch approach again, like I just wanted things to be able to motivate to the next cut all the time. Like I'm just constantly looking for something, anything where it's just a, like a hand, you know, a hand move or, you know, somebody, you know, spinning around and then, you know, catching that movement on the next cut. I, I was always just trying my best to motivate everything, everything. And then we'd also bring in somebody like Chris Scott, who is a choreographer and say, where did we fuck up? Like, tell me, tell me like, if we're really off here on the choreography, we're like, are they doing it correctly? Is there a better take? And he could like, I wouldn't say that it was that much, but there was probably like a couple dozen places that where he was saying, you know, Hey, do you have a better take? Or can you, can you nudge us a little bit to help them out? Or, you know, but um, there wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot. So this is kind of going back to what we were talking about before and this, but, and it's an editing 101 question, but something that I run into all the time, which is when you're shooting a musical, it's kind of like shooting stunts and shooting action, right? You're seeing five amazing angles on the same dance move, right? Um, and you said you'll watch a take and you'll write down, oh, this is where I felt emotional. I cried when this happened. What happens when you watch, you know, five different angles and you cried in every single angle or in three of the angles? My very bad habit is I try to cut from the wide to the close and try to capture both of those. And a lot of times it ends up dividing them and, you know, those moments in two instead of having them land. How do you, how do you, gauge you know what angle to use and how to recreate that feeling while having to obviously throw away a version of that feeling from a different angle does that make sense yeah look my mantra is don't cut unless you have to so i tend to uh, if i can hold on something like let's say like usnavi in the reflection uh, window at the bodega during i had plenty of coverage during that whole reflection you know but there was a design to it in which that had an emotional impact to just hold on that window. But I had three cameras going on that moment, you know, but you know, it's, it, it I'll be honest with you. It, it's just playing, you know, playing with it and, and experimentation where you're just like, I got this feeling when I was watching this angle and I've got that feeling that's, you know, you do have B or C cameras, maybe doing the same, shooting the same thing. Um, what's the choice? But I generally, gravitate you know to the wider angles if i if if i can you know there's more information there um but if i need to do a flourish and a close-up and that heightens you know that thing you know and pacencia fa there's this moment where while claudia is getting surrounded by all the dancers in one of the train cars and john originally wanted um it to just play more of a wider it's like no i really like that moment where they're like banging on the window behind her and that so because that has that has an emotion emotional impact as well. I could just sit in the wide and let all those dancers and see that choreography in the wide, but here it's like I can get a little bit of flourish, I get a little shock, I get a little goosebumpy when I when I did it, and um, you just kind of keep letting that stuff be your guide. And then when you scream for an audience, you're, and you're like, ah, no, I was wrong, or I was right, or you know, you just keep trying to gauge experimenting between you know the way you're cutting a scene yeah you know? i i love that so much and it didn't make me it occurred to me that the nature of shooting a studio film 
with a person like John is that you kind of have an interesting challenge coverage wise because he's such an intentional filmmaker. You know, if you only had one camera for every single scene, everything would still turn out great, right? You know, it might take a little bit longer, but like he knows where the where he wants the camera to be on most cuts, right? On on most moments. And then B and C or D camera, you know, it, it makes sense to have them because, you know, there's only so many times, only so much time in the day and only so many times you can have your dancers go at full steam on a scene before you're just burning people out. So it makes sense to just as a backup plan. Did you find oftentimes that you were sticking with his initial instinct and vision or were you mixing and matching a little bit more? How much were you inventing versus how much was part of the blueprint? And you're speaking about dance numbers specifically, right? Specifically, yeah. But but I guess it kind of applies to everything, right? I guess, yeah. I don't get his... I don't get... I don't download his brain too much before I start cutting initially because I want my own... I want to put my own take on it. And because he now trusts me, now that I've made a, one film before and we've cut a couple of pilots together, you know, there's a shorthand and trust that I, he knows that I'm going to sift through everything. I'm going to be very thorough and watch it, but I'm also going to really try to have my take, my own take about how to cut a scene. And, you know, every once in a while I'll get it wrong or he, or, you know, like that, that reflection shot where it's just like, no, don't, don't cut that one up, you know? Um, because you know, you look at it and you're just like, well, I, the visual effect isn't in there yet. You, you, you don't really, you know, it would have been helpful to talk to him before that, uh, before I started cutting that scene. Um, but I really, I, I tend to just love the freedom of, of approaching the footage. Like I don't even have a director, you know, that, uh, somebody just dumped all this found footage in my lap and said, make something out of it. You know, are you looking we, at the script at all when you're doing doing your first oh yeah. cut? Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Like I, I still feel like the script is a roadmap to to beats, you know, beats of the of a scene, or if the music's not doing it in this particular instance, um, you know, is there something indicated in the script that says, well, this is the climactic moment, you know? But I often feel like I have to, I have to also forget the script because the script kind of doesn't matter as well at this stage like it's we're we're going to do so much rewriting in the post process anyways um but then it's really helpful to like get in there with john and say you know um okay what do you think of this and like well i love what you did but there's this section that i really want to um we really want to work on together you know Pacencia Fe is one of those places where I had a really great pass, but he also had very specific ideas about transitions from train to train. And so we had to finesse those together. You know, those jump cuts with Usnavi and the Bottega at the, uh, at the opening number, like we really had to work on those tirelessly together to, you know, make those feel right and fun and, you know, have a lot of bounce to it. You know, 96,000. You know, I had done things structurally, visually that he hadn't intended. And we kept putting it off to like do his version. And he, he was like, okay, let's now do your ver like, let's do my version of structurally, like when to go underwater, for example. And it was like, oh yeah, it doesn't work that way. Let's go back to yours. So it's really a collaboration of of these. You're you like, know, told you. <laughs> it's like, what? I don't know what to say. 
you know, <laughs> you know, or, or there's really big moves like Pacencia Fay was scripted to go um, in the first act, first act of the movie, and right away we felt like it was not working so much so. And what's that number out. about for people? Uh, that's a movies. that's a yeah. So a Pacencia Fay is a Bravo Claudia's basically her her telling of her story of her life. And it's basically, a, you know, it's told visually brilliantly by, uh, between Alice Brooks and Chris Scott and John's direction. It basically, they're basically frozen memories, you know, illustrated with dance and spectacle. And it's, it's arguably maybe the most beautiful musical number ever. And so, you know, there's a possibility of us cutting it out of the movie because it wasn't working emotionally. It were like, why? Why are we going to this person's story right now? Like, it it made sense from a, you know, we introduce all the characters basically in the first half of the movie, but it didn't make sense for her, and that kind of number didn't make sense, especially before having that kind of number before ninety six thousand seemed like what? We're like filled with joy and 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 getting bounced, and we're feeling the heat of the summer. This is, has a whole other vibe. But I had told John. Look, this number could really work well as a um, spoiler alert. Um, you know, her life flashing before her eyes and her then passing away. And he was like, no, nah, that is I don't a spoiler. Think... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. We'll give people a heads up. <laughs> give a, yeah, give them a heads up because I, do, I definitely do not want to spoil that. But I, what's so interesting about that is for months we didn't do that. And. I mean, that's a pretty major transformation. Well, it also changes it from like being exposition in the beginning of the movie to filling out, right, the life of a person that you now care about. Yeah, 100%. In the back of my mind, I was like, yeah, this, I think this can work. Uh, I don't know how. And, you know, we had so much else to do that it wasn't like one of those experiments I could do on the side, you know, which is what editors do all the time. They're like, I'm going to do it anyways while he's not looking. And, um, but there wasn't really time for that, and and you know it was such a it was such a big move. I just wanted to be respectful of the process. You know, cut to you know we had a friends and family screening. Pacencia Face still where it is. People are still unsure about it. It's actually not getting really great marks. You know, in our friends and family screenings, and we're like, fuck, like is this thing going to go? And, you know, we're, I think we were like having brunch with the producers and John's was like, well, you know, we can move this thing to maybe right before she passes away. And Myron had this idea months ago and everyone's like, just in shock. And I was like looking at John and like, did you really say what you just said? Like, and I was like, and, and I was like, you know, kind of whispering, it's like, John, you know, I don't know if it's going to work, you know? And then everyone's like, that sounds really interesting. And then as soon as we left that brunch, we were like, okay, let's go try it. You know? What's interesting to me about that actual anecdote is that there's um, a level of politics to it that I think is fascinating, right? Like if you blindside people who, you know, have decision-making power and, and maybe haven't warmed to the idea and it's just like a big creative shift before they see an evidence that like there's something that needs to change, you know, you can kind of, you just surprise them. Right. But like if, it, if you're all working together to solve a problem that you all agree exists because of a, a screening, then all of a sudden that's when you can play that card of like, Oh, well we do have a solution. Let's try it out. Really. Yeah, fascinating. I've, there's a, there's a term pick your battles, you know, and it wasn't necessarily a battle. 
it just was like, it was something I knew we had to deal with. And I didn't know if, if I didn't know when we we're going to deal with it, but we're going to have to deal with it at some point. But you're ahead of the curve. You're in the weeds on like what's working and what isn't. And other people have to kind of wait to see to, to, for a screening to happen before they actually know what needs to be tweaked in the first place. Yeah. That's why the, editors the, are so cranky. They're like, we know. <laughs> I've been saying it for months. I know. Alone in I this know. room. Come on. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it, I, and the reverse of that is we had Benny and the Dispatch out of the movie for months and months and months because we were like, there's too much Benny and Nina. There's too many character introductions. When are we going to get, you know, we got, we kept saying, like, we got to get to 96,000. It was the same thing with Crazy Rich Asians. Like, we got to get to Singapore as quickly as possible like we have to get to 96,000 if we get to 96,000 we're gonna have so much goodwill and and, and 96,000 just for people who haven't seen oh movie. yeah so 96,000 is our our epic pool busby berkeley inspired gotcha. uh, yeah number. just a showstopper number yeah just yeah. like you're in the movie now gotcha yeah gotcha. correct and because again we had you know a majority of the numbers and the scenes before were introductions there wasn't a lot of conflict there wasn't a lot of you know no pun intended there wasn't a lot of fireworks as far as like the plot was concerned mm-hmm. or um, heightening <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be fun um, so we had that number been in the dispatch out for months and we even screened for Lynn for the first time without uh, that number he's like so well, where's Benny and dispatch <laughs> we're like oh we're we're just trying out a few things and it took a long time until it came back and then when it came back it was like thank god it's back like why did you guys you know so there is a a level of like you try some things politically and then other things you're just like i'm not ready you know we can't and you get it wrong you get it wrong and sometimes you get it right and uh, it's okay to fail sometimes when you get the win and it makes the film better that's great too yeah well i so i mean i think john too right now is arguably like one of the best if not the best dance filmmakers you know at least in the mainstream hollywood and um i'm curious i know you did crazy rich asians with him and you said a couple tv pilots but uh or did you did you know i worked with him as a as a wee teenager yeah yeah he went to sc right he went to sc and uh, I was a PA for him on his on his senior project, basically. And I very distinctly remember because we you would shoot on weekends, right? Um, and it was a it was a, a film that I'm sure is online now called Guaylo, and it was a musical. It was like you know that guy. He was fully formed. He was like, oh, this is the golden boy. He's gonna have a career immediately. Everyone knew it. But I remember very distinctly. It's probably a month or two into college calling my friends who were like hung over and asleep on a Saturday morning and being like, you guys, you got to get down here. They've got a dolly. <laughs> and I was, I was so, I think of that moment all the time and cherish it because I was so, it was a Fisher dolly. I was so excited. We had probably 12 feet of track, you know, it's <laughs> great. That's amazing. Anyway, I love, I great. love that yeah. so much. I love yeah. That. Yeah. My roommate ended up showing up and he is an extra and is very prominently featured. And I'm pretty jealous of it. Like, I think you can see my back in a few shots, but Tom, Tom Howard is like, there's oh, a yeah. shot of his face. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Well, so sorry, <laughs> what I was going to ask is you're working on this musical with this guy that is at the top musical guy there is in, in the film world. What are, can you give us some advice on how to shoot musical numbers? They're, they're famously 
hard. I don't think people realize how difficult it is to successfully film a bunch of people dancing and make it attractive, you know, on on camera. Like, is it just about wide lenses? Can you tell us about a little bit about camera movement, about coverage, about the colors, beat of about, the song? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Like, Tracking you motion, know, emotion. Yeah, I, it's all well, first of all, I think it's having a point of view and a vision about what it is versus I've worked on, you know, I guess the um, the Glee 3D concert movie is a good like example where they just shot in a concert, for two, a concert hall for two days and they just sprayed it down, you know? They just shot the hell of it. And, and, and when think, you say spray it down, you mean that there's just a ton of angles and a ton of coverage and not a ton of intention behind it necessarily. Correct. Right. Correct. Here's maybe, the pieces, put them together. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's in the spirit of those type of movies where, you know, Kevin, Kevin Tantron is a very talented choreographer, uh, filmmaker that I worked with in the past as well. So it's not like he was just like, you know, calling it in. But, the, you know, they're supposed to they're supposed to make you feel like you're in a in that room so it has more of a, uh, a feel of a live concert or like a, a sporting event rather than right. whereas something and like even a, hamilton you know, the the play is kind of like that correct right? yeah the, those live captures those live captures you know are supposed to make you feel like how it is in the theater and versus um something that has a point of view and intention um, a vision, you know, there's, there, there could be certain shots that, you know, like big gigantic crane shots at the end of in the Heights, or this is a place where we're going to see the whole community come together in this big gigantic mass, or in the beginning, we're going to, um, have aerial footage, but we're also going to have B cameras of just picking up little details of what this neighborhood is like, or we're going to have you know, these sweeping camera mo- moments in the bodega where we're following Usnavi along, but then, you know, we can have these jump cuts, you know. So I don't actually think there's any rules, <laughs> you know, like we were honestly breaking rules, you know, of, and sometimes we're just like right on the edge, seat of our pants, you know, like, is sh- should we be doing this? Then we can have like a traditional Busby Berkeley aerial shot, you know, about, you know, 50 foot above the pool, which, you know, evokes those, you know, the golden age of of cinema. But then you can have something super messy, you know, cutting to a woman in dreads, like dancing her heart out of the shower or this little girl dancing on top of a picnic table. Like there is, it's sort of like uh, combining documentary style with like really traditional Hollywood cinema. I love breaking rules. <laughs> I love like not like I love not like saying you have to do it a certain way because because I feel like it's just limits the tools in your toolbox, you know. And I love having the first half of this movie feel very almost silly and kind of light on its feet, and then the second half gets kind of almost melodramatic. I, I love melodrama. I jokingly like anyone. Somebody says melodrama was like, yes, I'm right here. Would you like, <laughs> would you let me in please? And it was a similar thing with crazy rich Asians, which is the or first half. How could like, you dare say that to me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, sign me right up. You know, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm like explore and crush all the rules and genres. Yeah. And now that being said, Alice is very intentional and in her light, her beautiful lighting. And I mean, every scene is just so gorgeously lit and, and, precise and she made a very 
distinctive looking hot simmer movie different right. than and she's almost a cinematographer else. yes that's correct yeah, I guess, I don't know. I feel like, I remember when League of Extraordinary Dancers came out, LXD, like John Chu's, mm-hmm. like, I think it was a web series. It was the, a web the series. The best dancers, yeah. like the be- and Step Up, you know, those movies. I mean, the dancing in those movies is, you could just watch it all day, you know? And I guess nowadays with TikToks, you can just sit there watching people dance all day and it's fun too. But I remember I've filmed some scenes where people dance. I shot this commercial where there's like a bunch, a bunch of people dancing and I'm like, I don't know. There's just something about the way he films dancing could be much better dancers uh, and choreography, but um, that is just like drawing me in. And it's, it feels like there's something about being on a wide angle lens about, you know, the, like the camera being part of the dance at times and scope, not part of the dance. Yeah. 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 I think there's a, I think there's definitely an interplay between the camera and the dancing, I think there's a, the traditional way is to basically hold that wide in like a proscenium sort of theatrical way and just let the dancing happen. But for us, like, you know, there's so many, every single one of those dancers are expressing themselves like an actor, you know, that is part of our language, you know? So I want to feature somebody, you know, and some of those people are doing, are doing the choreography exactly the way Chris Scott is intended. And some people are freestyling, you know? And so, I think that um, John gives permission for both, like, and I think that's why, and he understands dance, he understands dancers. So it's, for somebody who doesn't really, like, is that technically correct? I, again, I'm just sort of reacting to it emotionally. And so there may be a B or C camera, like Carnival, DeBarrio, they shot in one day, that whole number, and it was like a lot of cameras, like, you know, catching little, almost kind of like messy documentary style, you know, moments to cut to. And then they would have these really sort of epic shots, crane shots, dolly shots. They had these these amazing pans between the sections of the different dancers that basically feature different, uh, different countries of dance, you know. And um, anyways, there's so many different styles of shooting unless, you know, we had aerial footage, you know, we had, you know, which was originally like, you know, Google map images, you know, and mm-hmm. we're just like, okay, there's going to be the GW bridge. See it. It's it doesn't mm-hmm. look amazing. And, you know, we used stock footage and that then turned into cool dolly shots or, you know, cool little handheld pieces and, um, anyways, it's the a, friends and family screening. They're like, what, what, what is I stock? How, what's what's what pond five what does that mean it's funny because we had so many of our friends found family footage with that that um that stock footage it wasn't until i think after or like our second preview that we uh, we finally got to shoot that community chorus uh properly so i was just like we have to get the stock footage clean like you can't have water <laughs> sure. they can't have water yeah, marks it's a bummer yes yeah. yeah. spend the 65 bucks but you know myron what what's interesting to me what what you're helping me realize is that I feel like if you look at musicals specifically throughout film history, it started like Busby Berkeley. It was like the goal of that was to treat people like almost like props. They, they needed to be identical. They needed to be in lockstep with one another. You can use a mirror to, to amplify them and all that stuff. And it was about the design and mass. Right. And then I feel like in the nineties, give or take, there was this shift into like, what if regular people were the dancers? You know, I think of like 
uh, when everyone says I love you, that old Woody Allen movie or and La La Land, I think, is in this tradition as well of just like, you know, you're you're good at dancing. A li- you practice. There's great choreography, but like it's OK if Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone aren't incredibly talented dancers. They're they're going to make up for it in charisma. And there's a charm to that. But what this movie, it sounds like it's, it's kind of doing is like the combination of, you know, eclectic, diverse, real world style casting with a Hollywood golden era sort of approach to it as well. So you can cut between Verite that's rough and ready and then also get the incredible spectacle of the aerial footage or the incredible crane shot. And the the dancing is immaculate. And that is an interesting evolution and very exciting to me. I think Yeah, it's a, I, um, I don't want to go too much into the critics, but you know, the, for the people who don't like the cutting of the movie, they're just like, well, I wish you'd just hold on the wides. It's like, well, that's not what this movie is. You know, it's about the messiness. I'm sorry, it just is. Like, if you don't like that, you think I'm cutting it up too much. Like, I'm, it's just not what the movie is. And it's about, it's about the little details. It's literally what the trailer said. It's the little details in order for us to not feel invisible, you know? So I, I love the fact that we highlight the messiness, highlight each and every dancer's expressive flair. And um, yeah, it's what makes the film, I think. I think. And I also think that's why people who see John's work connect to it so deeply. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, on an editing front, I didn't realize there was the criticism about it being too cutty or something like that. That seems crazy to me. But knowing, you know, you said you love to like live in the wide. When you see those big crane shots, you see those big wides, and in you know the raw footage, you're everyone is always blown away. That's the coolest shot. So it it's a real conscious decision that like you really process every time you cut out of that footage because you know it means something to you. You know the decision to cut from the cool big wide shot, you do it with intention and purpose. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, you know I whatever and, critics, and, <laughs> it hurts to cut is what I'm saying. It, I'm going to say it for it, you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. No, it's um. Look, I, again, I'm very lucky for what I do. I just like, but there's an intent. There, in, there's an intention that everything that I'm that we're doing, we're not just, we're not just cutting like a, you know. There's some numbers like ninety six thousand, which is, you know, a bit more cutty, and it's you could say arguably it's more like a music video. But that wasn't the intention at all. Like, so we weren't, we're not doing things in a random way just to cut between shots. We're highlighting details and, and sometimes protecting our actors and doing things that we do that will heighten the, the, the performance. The, the, the heights. In the heightens. <laughs> um, yeah. And you, I assume like the people that are probably critical about cutting away from the white shot are the people that are madly in love with the stage show. That might maybe are just looking to see the stage show film or madly in love with that specific, you know, sort of shooting style that, you know, seeing Fred Astaire like dance across this soundstage and just holding on them. There's there's magic to that for sure. You know, Um, but, you know, we're also competing with a generation of people who are basically living on TikTok, you know, and and we're you know, we're trying to. We're trying to connect to those people as well. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned TikTok. My wife is on like a tear of like old Hollywood, like Instagram and TikTok. And they'll speed those dances up. It, it drives me nuts. They'll be like, oh yeah, you just can't fit 
those long oneers. You're just like, oh my god, it's still charming though. So. Um, I know we have to wrap up soon, but I just wanted to just quickly ask you about your philosophy about music outside of musicals. It's something I'm always curious about. When you start cutting a, a movie, do you have any rules that you like to start with in terms of what scene gets music, what scene doesn't get music? Like, do you use temp music? How how do you work with music in general as an editor? I'm I'm curious. I, I try to wait as long as possible before I put a single note in because I feel like it's a crutch. And it usually, it, it generally will, um, it'll affect the rhythm of things. So uh, it's been, <laughs> it's been this sort of challenge against my own sort of, you know, my, my lazy self where I'm just like, if I just put music in there, this scene's going to work. And, um, right. cause Thanks just in the score. Yeah, exactly. You can just really cheat something. And so more and more, I wait really like the last, like when I'm working in television specifically, you know, you have to put together those cuts very quickly and those assemblies together. And I don't, I don't even connect the scenes to each other, let alone, you know, put any music or sound effects. I wait really late in the process before I start doing it. Like even for the transitions from scene to scene, you don't do those? No. Oh, how come? Because again, I think it's a it's a, it's something that's going to um, indicate it's going to smooth over that transition and make it work versus like something that should be working by itself. Like if so, for example, so oftentimes I all even turn off all the sound to like even the dialogue just to watch it visually. You know, sometimes I'll, I would even do that on, on, in the heights. Like I was mm-hmm. just like, I that's how like, I cut the podcast actually. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. sorry, I'm sorry. I had a copy. My that is a, that is a, that's a hat trick. Yeah, yeah. They, I use, I've been sorry, you were saying term. something valuable. No, you were saying something important. You know, I'm just saying that um, I try not to use things, which I basically call icing on the cake, you know, to basically smooth over something that should work on its own. Now, at the end of the day, if I still need a musical transition to like, and TV specifically, it's like, it's all about those musical transitions. You know, they just, where's our, where's our button, you know, um, to get to the next place. But it's more like, anyways, long story short, I try to wait as long as possible. You know, try to, try not to trick things out until I feel like the performance works the you know uh it works visually and um i tell young editors all the time don't do it like i know you want to do it i want to do it i want to do i want to do all that and then they'll say i was like turn off all that music you know and oftentimes when i work with really great directors and i've tricked something out with all my you know assembly to give to them they'll say turn off all the music i was like okay know exactly why you're asking me that's really interesting orin you were going to say the same thing that I'm thinking, I think. That I always put music in the beginning and now I feel like a real idiot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the reason... Yeah, I mean, it, it, the music does help point. set a tone sometimes that you can use as an editor. But And it, I did a feature and I, one of the things that the composer and the sound designer and I would talk about is how there's this interplay between action in the, the film, the sound that we hear, and the music. And sometimes when... You cut a whole movie, which is what we did with temp music or whatever. And then our composer comes in. We haven't left him room in the cut to have that moment of musicality that is helping, you know, tell the story or, or 
turn the story upside down or whatever. I look. I used to. I used to do completely the opposite thing. I used to just trick everything out, and you know, I've obviously I've cut things like Garden State or Nick and Orson playlist that's like wall to wall like needle drops, you know. And so, but I and so I did a even a bit more back in those days, you know, where it was just like it's all about the soundtrack. But I've just learned that I'm getting better by you know just as a as a storyteller as a filmmaker by resisting my own urge. Yeah, no, I I love that. I, I guess what I was just thinking through is that oftentimes when I'm going to show, especially like in a commercial or something with a tighter turnaround in particular, or where there are like other people who other creative stakeholders you kind of have to answer to as a director, I'm always apprehensive of letting them use their imaginations. Do you know what I mean? If they're like, oh, there's shouldn't there be music here? And I know it's a little bit of apples and oranges when you're talking about a feature film versus a 30 second commercial. But I would always be like, I want everything in this cut before we send it to anybody because I, I want them to know exactly what I'm thinking. But I, I, it's interesting because what you're saying is that before doing that, make sure it works. Don't, it can be a band-aid or, or covering up something in an inadequacy that has the, that you're not seeing because there's something there to kind of mask it. There's a, there's a term, you know, that you guys probably know, like uh, putting lipstick on a pig. Sure. You know? Yeah. 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 And that's get a lot of pigs in the commercial pigs, business, yeah. buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, but I've also, I've literally saved scenes by, by just, just keep working the footage, working it tirelessly, creating performances and moments out of nothing because I was patient with the process. And generally, when I went too soon, too fast, and all that extra stuff, all that, all that icing, they generally wasn't, they, they, they didn't serve their potential, yeah. That um, makes complete sense. I love also, that. Myron's relationship with the people he's showing the cut to, right, producers, directors, whoever, is different than when we are cutting a commercial and we want to show it to a client or an agency and we want them to think like, oh, we hired the right person, you know? For, right, I think as an editor, it's more like, okay, here's a starting point for us to have discussions about and see what's working and what's not working. As a director, you're just like, of a commercial, you just want the people that gave you the money to do it to like be like, woo, this is sick, you know? Yeah, so you're servicing, you know, different clients. And that being said about uh, my process, John does like to trick things out very easily. Like he's obsessed with sound design. Like he p- prefers me to get really deep with the sound design. And on this film, I actually cut for the first time, I cut in 5.1 in my edit bay. And I did that because I knew he liked to trick things out, having worked with him on you know the last few things. And I was, I was really hesitant to do it as a technical challenge because like I'm already cutting a goddamn gigantic musical. I'm also gonna teach myself how to do 5.1. And you're cutting an avid, right? Just to confirm. That's correct, that's correct. You know, cutting in five one really gave me the toys to approximate what it felt like to feel to see the and hear this thing in a theater, and so I could create chaos with my assistants, like cutting up sound design, and I could mix it a certain way, or I could add sound design, like that whole like chaotic scene in Blackout with all the fireworks. I was like, I need us to make this thing so fucking loud and chaotic. You know, because when we go into something like Pacencia Fay, it's going to get so quiet. And when she passes away, you know, we actually, t- I take out all the sound out of the entire, 
there's no sound. There's not even tone at that moment. And I did that in the edit in order just to sketch it out. So I do a lot of that work very early in the process, knowing that it's icing on the cake, but I also know that John really digs that stuff. Yeah, you don't serve John a uh, naked cake. I don't. You make sure the cake is good first, and then you well, then you put the icing on it. Even yeah. that scene, there was like a, a real simple scene with um, with uh, Mark Anthony and um, Anthony Ramos, and uh, he's just watching baseball, and um, and there was like a fan there, and it's like a hot day, and you could just hear the subway. So we created all these like really, just almost. Um, just re- just texture really but you know really early on in the assembly process i was putting this stuff in and i was just like i just loved it so much being part of like trying to figure out that scene you know because it, it's very awkward it's very hot it's very it's like i feel like i've stepped into that scene from all those elements it's great well thanks myron this has been awesome we could literally do an entire episode with you on pretty much every single movie (laughs) like i could just ask you about editing girls probably for like five hours um but uh but are you allowed to tell us what you're working on next what you're uh, well i'm currently working on tick tick boom with lynn and miranda now so cool congratulations uh, and he's directing uh yes he is this is his directorial debut and it's going really well and i'm the trailer just dropped a uh, teaser trailer just dropped a few days ago and does um, that mean so, he thought you did a good job on in the heights <laughs> i think so it was so funny because um i actually um i'm actually taking over for another editor there's an amazing editor named andy weisblum who cuts darren aronofsky's films and wes anderson's films nah, so never heard of him. Uh, Andy did an incredible job just getting it up on, up on its feet. And, um, but COVID have, had messed up his schedule. So Darren had a new movie. And so John, John Chu called me up and said, did you take that job? I was like, no, no, I didn't take that, that, that other film job. I was like, okay, good. Because Lynn's going to call you. I was like, really? Lynn's going to call me? It's like, and he joking like, yeah, I think you did an okay job on, on the height. So. <laughs> Man, that's so, a pretty good company you're hanging out. I with. mean, I'm like a, I'm literally this kid from Oceanside, California, raised by Surfers. plumber, and, and raised by dolphins. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say, and you know, no, raised by you know middle class, like uh, not artistic type. Although my dad was you know artistic, he was you know he was a plumber by by trade, and to think that I'm now here talking to you guys after i mean i just it's it's a literally pinch myself moment you know yeah i mean being on just shoot it is the honor of a life yeah it's the pinnacle it's (laughs) it's the oscars of uh, west coast podcasts Um, no because i know i know that you're you you both are wizards and you're really fucking funny so um (laughs) you guys thank you guys um Um, we did go to four years of wizarding school um (laughs) <laughs> well cool well are you cool to hang out with us for a minute for our unpaid yeah. endorsement section sure absolutely unpaid endorsements so my unpaid endorsement actually is our good pals at vanishing angle uh, which is a production company that made movies like uh, thunder road and uh werewolves within which is coming out this summer i believe with our pal josh rubin anyway uh good buddies a lot of them have been on the show but uh, they did a South by Southwest panel for 2021 virtual panel that is really great. Talks just about not only their approach, but the nature of 
making independent film um, with your friends in your backyard in 2021. So I think it's it kind of gives you a good overview of their philosophies specifically, but also just like kind of independent film at large, um, which is pretty nice. And because things are shifting and changing, I think up-to-date information on the business models and, and what to aspire to or how to aspire to something um, specifically, I think is pretty valuable. So their South by Southwest panel is up on the South by Southwest YouTube. Um, and do yourself a favor, browse through all the other stuff. It's pretty rad. You can basically feel like you attended all of the panels at South by Southwest for free on YouTube without having to go to Austin. So um, is it with video or with video? Yeah, yeah. It's a Zoom. They're all Zooms, basically. Yeah. So it's pretty great. Um, grab yourself a, a, a breakfast taco and you're basically there. <laughs> so that that is my unpaid endorsement. Mr. Myron, what you got, buddy? Yeah, so this t-shirt, actually one of our actors is wearing this t-shirt in the movie, Anthony Ramos, during Carnival de Barrio. And it's designed by this guy named Tony Peralta. And Tony Peralta lives in Washington Heights, and he has a uh, website called PeraltaProject.com. And he is this amazing Washington Heights Dominican design, you know, artist, designer, and as soon as I started seeing his stuff, um, I was just <laughs> I have to get all of it. But I, I think there's there, it feels very New York, but also very you know um, his style, which is you know a little bit street, a little bit just uh, punk. Um, you know, this is sort of sort of inspired with the in the Heights uh, logo that you see been seeing all over the, all the advertisements. So, um, anyways, I just wanted to give him a shout out because. My brother-in-law was just like, "Where did you, get, where did you get that shirt?" I was like, "Tony Peralta, like he's amazing." And um, anyways, I just think he's an incredible designer and uh, wanted to spread the word. Yeah, I'm checking out his site. It's awesome, awesome stuff on here. Well, cool. So my endorsement is, uh, it's kind of an obvious one, but I'm just doing it anyway because uh, I I bought a new hard drive today on Amazon, five terabyte hard drive, because I've had. I have like seven hard drives on my desk just for my kind of day-to-day stuff. I have a hard drive that has everything I've ever directed. Um, that's like my director's real hard drive. And I have a hard drive with all the sound effects, like 600 gigs of sound effects. And then I have like another hard drive that has, um, you know, templates and fonts. And uh, I have one that has a bunch of 3D stuff. And I just have all these hard drives. And I love getting these like lacy, rugged drives. And this is a five, you can get a five terabyte drive for like 150 bucks. You can get a Western Digital for like 90 bucks or whatever. But I like these rugged ones because I can throw them in my backpack. And basically, I just put this in my backpack anywhere and where I go and work on any project I work on. And I always have like high quality copies of everything I've ever made. If I need to show someone something or rip something, I have like my whole sound effects library. I have all my graphics my stock footage my action essentials all that stuff and um i'm excited that i'm gonna put it all on one drive so i can carry it around maybe matt i can even give you my old sound effects drive i yeah i wouldn't mind your sound effects drive could i just add a little a little story to that that um you know when i started out as an assistant editor you know um and they created this thing called avid and uh they would have drives as big as i don't know big as like a uh three hardcover books stacked on top of each other mm-hmm. and those we would have to encyclopedia yeah 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 and yeah, they would like be so heavy block. and those yeah. would be nine gigabytes yeah yeah nine yeah. gigabytes and well I'll, you'll never need more space man 
<laughs> totally. It was just like, you can fit a whole film on 20 of these. Yeah. And we would just like, we, uh, and I'd also rebuild Avid's because, you know, part of being an assistant editor back then was like, you have to build the whole system too. And then we'd like, oh, I gotta do it. I gotta daisy chain all these drives. And oh, it's just like, just, just, that was the hard part of being an assistant back then and working night shifts, you know, all night. Cause you had to digitize, literally have to digitize footage and watch the, the tape deck rewind and wind back up and, and watch your life. Go <laughs> yeah well it seems to it seems to have worked for you yeah yeah it worked out okay yeah, yeah. So that, that's good training grounds carrying that's true. gigantic drives you know? yeah yeah but it's just you know i think um connecting like taking all your most important most used tools and putting them in one place is always is always smart and so i'm i'm refreshing that for myself I feel like Questlove just carries around like a couple terabytes of music with him in a suitcase at all times. I feel like oh. I saw that in a documentary. So. I can easily see that. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. need someone to DJ? Yeah, yeah I'll yeah. do it. Yeah. Um, well, awesome. Um, uh, Myron, if people want to find out more about you and what you're working on, do you, are you on social media? Do you, how, how do people yeah, keep track I have, of you? Uh, I'm on uh, Instagram and uh, Twitter. And, um, Myron, at Myron Kirstein? Yeah, I think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> M-I-K-F-L-I-K-S. Yes, yes. That's my Instagram. But Twitter is uh, at Myron Kirsten. Awesome, man. Well, um, if you want to learn more about the things that we talked about, you can go to justshootapod.com. We'll have links to plenty of the stuff that we talked about over this episode. Um, and you can follow us across all social media at justshootitpod. Uh, you can email us at justshootapod at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. Or give us a call. Leave us a voicemail at 262-SHOOT-1. It's a real treat to hear your voice. We really love that. And you can follow me across all social media at Mr. Matt Enloe. And I'm on Twitter at Smitey Pileg. I'm on Instagram at O'Kaplan. And uh, this episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our social media maestro is Derek Aiello. We have some consulting producing from Ali Kornfeld. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And we'll catch you all next week. Thanks, Thanks everyone. everyone. Thanks, Myron. Thanks, Myron.